Welcome to episode three of season two of the Database Podcast, hosted by the Insight Consortium at the Indiana University School of Education. I'm Dr. Molly Stewart, Director of Insight. And I'm Rosh Thanouti, Director of Cloud Engineering at Education Analytics. And we also have with us today a guest host. Um, Emily, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Emily Oaks. I am the principal Unison IT consultant at Indiana University. Unison is a consortium of higher education institutions working to advance work in a few areas, including the use of learning analytics in teaching and learning. Separate from that, I am also the Indiana University data steward for learning management and learning analytics data. Thank you so much for joining us, Emily. We learned about Emily's work and thought it would be a great combo with this episode on the toolkit. So we work uh, at Insight with school districts on interoperability and data quality using the EdPi data standard. And through this work, we have come to realize that there are at least three different languages being spoken by people working in this space. The language of databases and code, the language of teaching, learning, and educational leadership, and the language of research, including data science and statistics. This podcast aims to bridge the gaps between those three general areas, because the more we understand how each group conceptualizes data-related topics, the more progress we can make towards solutions for educators and students that fully take advantage of best practices and cutting-edge knowledge in each of these fields of work. Our guest today is Dr. Amy Hahn Nelson, Director of Training and Technical Assistance for an initiative at the University of Pennsylvania called Actionable Intelligence for Social Policy, or AISP. In this role, she supports integrated data systems, or IDS, and works with IDS sites across the U.S. to develop shared purpose-driven data infrastructure that centers strongly on data governance. We came across the work of Dr. Han Nelson and AISP via the publication of A Toolkit for Centering Racial Equity Throughout Data Integration, which was published in 2020. This toolkit focuses on the variety of challenges and risks of data integration for racially minoritized groups and also provides a number of better practices for addressing those challenges and reducing risk of harm. We at Insight see this Toolkit is extremely useful for the EdFi community and others working on data integrations as the center social, non-technical implications that are not always on the radar of technology work. We are so pleased that you could join us today, Dr. Han Nelson. Thanks, everybody. Um, I am so thrilled to be here. I My background is education, but I live in this social policy space day to day. So it is lovely to be with ed-focused people. That's normally not who I get to interact with every day. So thanks for having me. We would love to start by having you give us some background on this work and what led you and your team to envision and create this toolkit. So AISP, our, our work is all deeply applied work. So everything we do comes from this network of integrated data systems that we run nationally. And by network, it is a very loose thing. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a very loose term of the word network. So I actually come from the network. I was director of one of these things in my community and then was hired at Penn um, back in 2017 to lead some national initiatives. So everything that we publish, everything we write about, all of our work is focused on, you know, work that sites are grappling with. Um, none of this is theoretical. It, it is, I mean, it's based on theory, but um, it is applied. So this toolkit comes directly from conversations with sites. We were running a lot of technical assistance around supporting sites to create data governance and legal frameworks. 
for data sharing integration. And we had some sites. And then in my own experience, being director of one of these things, everyone said, you know, equity is a core principle. And we really think that integration should be used to drive equity shifts. But we don't know how to do that. Like, we would like you to write about it. And we kind of went back to to our, our sites. And then my own reflection as having been a director of one of these things and said, yeah, you're right. Like, we don't know how to do it. Um, we certainly aren't an expert here. No one is. Um, no one is an expert at this intersection, right? No one is an, uh, an expert on racial equity because it's one of those things. It's very hard. You know, it, we're always learning and growing. And, and surely no one is an expert on shared data infrastructure. It's just too complicated. So crossing those two, you know, we're all learning together. So we put together a participatory research project. We convened a national work group, spent, you know, a whole lot of time putting that together. We, this is pre-COVID, we, you know, drank a lot of coffee, ate a lot of muffins, a lot of chart paper, a lot of dot stickers, um, and really just got people who had been in this world to come to some agreement on some principles. And so that's that's the toolkit. I am the main kind of like cat herder for this toolkit. It is not my work. Um, I'm the one that helped get everyone's ideas down on paper and synthesize them, but it is a collaborative work of many. Um, and if you look at the toolkit, we've got lots of names in there. It was a, you know, we had everyone on our work, on our you know participatory action work group from, you know, a 30 year like self-described bureaucrat in Utah, to um, a community activist, never part of government, who like openly was trying to, frankly, blow up a data integration effort. Um, so our work group was very intentionally pulling from very different perspectives and vantage points and trainings. Um, but we all agreed that like data infrastructure is here, racial equity must be centered. Um, and so our work was figuring out how to do that. And the toolkit reflects all that. Some of the work that uh, I did while I was at Insight and then also the work, the same vein of work that we're doing here at Education Analytics. A lot in this resonated with me. So I'm trying to kind of organize my thoughts here. But what was really helpful was you had you had like a this this illustration that had a matrix of, of risk that started to place particular practices on a spectrum with like two axes. Could you kind of walk the listeners through that to help guide some kind of critical examination of our current practice. And it, it it made me start thinking, I had just been at a meeting in Dallas for this big education data collaborative that's starting up for, for Texas districts. And as I was looking around the room and I was listening to the things that we were talking about in that steering committee, we are so focused on the technical and the costs and completely losing sight of the the students and the people that are going to be facilitating all of the flow of data and bringing that model to this part of the process might help us avoid some really critical things that we kind of bake into our data systems from the jump because we're not critically looking at racial and, and equity-based consideration. So if you could just walk us through that, I, I that really got sparked a lot of thinking for me. Yeah, no, I am so glad you asked me about this particular topic because it's one that I present on a lot and one that like my, my um, words around it have gotten a lot crisper <laughs> since 2020. 
this is our what we call our risk benefit matrix. And this is really like the root of our work at AISP. And if you look at our, our logo, there's a person in our logo that is purposeful. Like we center the people, like our work is not around the tech. In fact, if you read anything we write our, and participate in any of our TA, we are tech agnostic. We have seen data integration done really well with like a hardened computer in a closet. And we've seen data integration done really well with, you know, a very complicated IT stack with $2 million worth of tech consultants and everything in between. So the focus is the people and how you determine ethical use is figuring out what people think about the use, right? And so it's the table setting is really important here. Um, we call that governance very broadly. So, you know, the, the people policies and procedures that support how data are managed and used. Very broad definition of data governance. One tool that we found the most helpful to think about data governance specifically for, for very specific projects is this risk benefit matrix. So think about just a, a quadrant, you know, a matrix of four. Think about the top left corner. If you can make a picture in your mind, the top left, think of that as green. The bottom right is red. And then these other two quadrants that are sideways to each other are yellow, right? And so if you were doing governance well, you were making sure that you were staying in the green. If you have the right people around the table to make decisions that are thinking about intended and unintended consequences, then you are balancing the risk versus the benefit to the work. We try to be really careful around being prescriptive because every community is different and every topic is different. So for example, if your community has a legacy of something, then it's going to be really important for you to think about that legacy. For example, Baltimore City has a legacy there around use of data that is different from other communities. So in Baltimore, data use is going to be considered with a different lens, right, than say Iowa. There are different histories, there are different relevant, you know, pieces to the work and, and they have to be considered differently. So we are very place-based here and topic-based. In the toolkit, if you read it, you will see examples where we have placed them. That is just where our work group placed those events. I have done that same activity with the same topics in different places, and they have been placed totally different places. So in one community, an example of a common data use is like warning risk indicators, right? In some communities, that is fair game, right? That is high benefit, low risk, and that is considered an ethical use of data. It's legal, it's ethical, it's a good idea. It's kind of our, our framing. And how do you know? You know, because you have good data governance. In other communities, early warning risk indicators, they don't fall into that classification. They are considered high risk. And often they are under additional scrutiny or, or communities just decide not to use them for a variety of reasons. Like the key ideas here are, there is no clear answer for whether something is high benefit, low risk. It all depends on the context. So that's one piece. Second piece is like, it's people talking about this. This can't be decided by one person. It's gotta be groups of people who have a lot of insight and content knowledge around the use of data and where the data comes from. So your data standards are critical here. Data quality is, is critical here. And then you also have to have folks who have some kind of lived experience with the topic you're talking about so they can inform whether this is legal, ethical, a good idea. It's going to be really different to hear about 
early warning risk indicators from someone who has been surveilled repeatedly or someone who has a high risk score versus someone who is sitting at a central office, never been student facing, doesn't have pictures attached to those stories, right? I was a teacher and school administrator for many years before, up until about a decade ago. And so when I look at early warning risk cater, like I've got pictures of kids in my head, right? Mm-hmm. But a lot of us don't have that. And so making sure we're centering the human, right? That these data represent is so important in the work. And that's really core to governance. Yeah, that's such an excellent point. It, it's, that has been, I I think, and I'll speak for Molly and myself, I think that's what actually has kept us motivated in this work is that very early on, we we were just completely abstracted and we were hawking a dashboard that had exactly what you're describing, like a set of green, red, yellow indicators for students. And it was completely unattached from the actual community that we were deploying this in. So those dashboards are developed in Texas. We're bringing them to Indiana. We thought that it was it, it had baked in all the right considerations, but then as we started rolling out, one, the technology didn't work, but that's beside the point. But also <laughs> if it did work, what would it have done? And not till we had a couple of real champions who have been on previous podcast episodes where we started to join faces and and actual students with the work that we're doing that helped us stay motivated and kind of drive through all of the complexities of what we work on to say, okay, we're doing it for these students. And then this work considered this student. And then when we make a decision, we always have them in the forefront of our mind. I think that was a key takeaway for me as I was reading through the toolkit is, okay, we, we're we on the right track here uh, in terms of insight, but there's a lot more to do because that's only a small subset of students that we've we've impacted. Um, And more often than not, especially in the work that we're doing here at EA, because of the scale that we're at, we don't really get those individual students. What we do get is actually individual staff members that can then relay that information to us. Um, It's getting all my like anthropology undergrad is is all coming to the surface here because it's like all all of these types of questions are all in that realm and it makes me miss some of the ethnographic work I used to do back then but I saw Emily shaking her head a lot so I from a university perspective I'm fascinated to see what your what your thoughts are on this I think a lot of us in higher ed are still thinking this through ourselves. You know, it's funny, I uh, pull, I grabbed the toolkit and I looked at the cover and said, oh, this has been in my binders for a few years. I've been referencing this for a long time. Uh, so thank you, Amy, for the work that you've done here. It's really important. Um, and something that I have been working with um, actually is part of the the, um, Unison Consortium, a a bunch of folks from the different institutions and a bunch of different roles have been working on a curriculum for helping our faculty use data in the classroom. And a really, really, really big focus is data are indicators, they're not certainties. You need to include the voices of your students. You don't look at something and make a decision. You look at something and then you talk with your students, you know, survey or one-on-one, that kind of thing before you do something. 
And Amy, I'm sure that at some point was rooted in some of what you were talking about in here, including the qualitative information along with the data. I was curious from sort of the like practical operational standpoint, how do you see people including those stories to go alongside the data? When people meet AISP and they read about our work, they automatically think we're all quantitative methodologists. And what's funny is that none of us are. In fact, my work is mixed methods, but mainly qual. So, and and like, once you like really get into it, you're like, oh. <laughs> so we know enough about hang, but like our work is the mixed methods, um, but it's really challenging, but it's directly related to what you're talking about, right? Like how do you, so you've got a story how do you understand the story, right? So you take the data, you can get really great insights from that, and then you have to put narrative around it. And that's really challenging. We have some sites that are doing that well, um, but I want to loop back and connect to what Rosh just said about like pulling on your ethnographical experience, like anthropological, kind of a joke, but not. We're writing a job description for a, a member of our team right now. And I literally have in skills, it has uh, must like ideal candidate must have nuanced sociological understanding of how like race, class, gender, you know, ability, like impacts social policy and practice, right? So a lot of this is around sociological understanding and, and anthropological understanding, all these like soft science pieces that we often don't get to dwell on. Um, Rosh, I was also a sociology undergrad, so um, power to the soft sciences there. <laughs> But that's right. All that's of, right. Everybody should do it. <laughs> at least, at least get a minor in it because it does help. It's helped so much. It's yeah, no, it's 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 critical for this work because we we have to pull in the voice, right? We have to pull in. That's where you do pull in theory, right? We know a lot about how you know culture is created. We know a lot about how how society functions from sociology, um, and all that has to be pulled into the understanding of the data. So our toolkit work is from 2020, as, as you re referenced, Emily, like you've had it in your binder for a while, yay. And it still feels kind of old, but also like very new because we are scratching the surface in the toolkit. So for the last year and a half, we have been working on site-based TA where we work, we, we call it our equity and practice learning community, where we have sites across the United States who are operationalizing the toolkit in their work. And so our job is to support that cohort-based TA. Um, and that's this is like our, one of our main projects at AISP right now. So we are learning alongside sites in real time as they figure this out. They are doing mixed method stuff. <laughs> I say stuff because it's not, it doesn't firmly fall into buckets. So sometimes this is pulling on existing histories. Um, there's been a lot of focus on like racialized under understanding of racialized history program in place. So like why does the child welfare system in our community function this way? Oh, we have this like, we have this history here that we're trying to understand. So there's some of that. So there's interviewing going on. There's a lot of talking to historians going on. There's a lot of like geo geographically based data being looked at. So we're trying to understand the program in place and how it's relevant to outcomes now. So that's a piece of it. There's a lot of participatory action research that's being kicked off. Right now, all of that is very project specific. So for example, we have one site that is focused on 
parents who are interacting with early childhood systems in their state. So, and that work has been ongoing. It's not, that's not particularly through our learning community, but it is work that we keep an eye on and is related to a site in our learning community. We have another site. All their work is based on understanding children who have, and families who have experienced involuntarily, involuntary or voluntary committals for health, for mental health um, evaluation through the schools. So these are essentially how that plays out. Schools have called for a mental health crisis of a child. A child is picked up by the sheriff's office, taken to a mental health intake facility. And this participatory research is all around like how that happens, what happens, and what are the outcomes, and how can we support families better? So that is inherently mixed methods, right? So they're putting the data around it, which has been fascinating, but they're also putting the story around it because everyone that's doing the work has had this lived experience of um, having either themselves or an immediate family member, or they are staff who works with these um, families and children um, who have experienced this. So that's like the two main ways that we're seeing the voice put in. So through like secondary sources and existing histories, and then through participatory projects. The third way that isn't as like filled out, but some sites are working on it is through specific governance structures. So you may have like a resident advisory board. So let's say like there's a proposed data use for integrate data. It goes through like a data stewards group. It go goes to an executive group, goes to a data stewards group. Before it is approved, it goes to like a resident group. So I would say like three main mechanisms that we're seeing right now for that. We're all mucking through the muck. No one is doing this perfectly. It's tough work and it's really hard to get funded. So I, I want, I don't want to miss that. Like people are doing it because they're passionate about it, but like the, the money isn't always there, which is tough. How do you reconcile that with like the amount of time that it would take to do that adequately? Because I'm just thinking when you start scaling out and you're maybe covering multiple communities with a data project, that seems overwhelming to, to just imagine the amount of work to connect all those dots. Totally. I actually have like a slide and a presentation deck that I do a lot that has like the, the weights of like a scale and it's identifying tension in this work. So like the tension is in an ideal world, we wouldn't have data infrastructure without community voice at every step of decision-making. The reality is that this data infrastructure exists, like the horse is out of the barn, the train has left the station, whatever metaphor you want to say here, like it's too late. So all we can do is do the best we can do, right? We can't let the perfect like stop us from trying to improve practice. So Yes, <laughs> like we need more voice and we need data to inform decision-making, right? And so we just have to balance that and we just have to be like crystal clear in that we wish it were better. It's not, we're doing the best we can. In terms of governance and governing in these areas, and I'm thinking like on a broader scale, these questions bring up to me like this bigger question of democratic participation and thinking especially because we work primarily with education agencies state and local technically you know these are elected 
or or some part of an elected government, right? So you could look at this with the assumption of this is an elected group and therefore the governance is there. What what they do is stamped with the approval of the voters, right? But we know that that's not really the reality because there's this big disconnect between part like the the details of what we're doing with in this case data versus all of the various issues that go into why people vote for one person or another or is there even choice in an election et cetera et cetera so I think it brings up a really great question like about democracy <laughs> and just in terms of governance sometimes critically looking at who who are officially in the roles for governance and is that enough? And I think your work says it's not. Yeah, I would agree that elected officials are great. I love most of my elected officials, not all of them in my community, but yeah, this isn't their role, right? So when you think about our definition of data governance, right? So like people, policies, procedures that support how data are used and protected my elected officials, like none of them are data security experts. None of them are subject matter experts on human service data. None of them have ever been in a school building or understand how schools work or how the data are collected. That's just not their role, right? So to get back to that framing we have around legal, ethical, good idea, how do you know? So how do you know who decides is that data governance piece? So to determine whether data uses, you know, should happen or should, if it's in that high risk, I mean, a high benefit, low risk category, right? You first have to decide, like, is it legal? That's lawyers, right? I do have some elected officials that are lawyers, but most of them are not. They certainly don't practice in this area of law. So that's one, like lawyers have to be involved at some point. Is it ethical? Like that's all based on who's in the data. Like ethical use should be determined if you're talking about student-based data, Ethical use should be determined by people in a building, in the data, or parents of, of kids in the data, right? Like, in my opinion, full stop. And then, is it a good idea? That comes down to a lot of, like, resource allocation. For example, a common data use we see in the school space that we have opinions about is this, like, linking of risk indicator data, of, like, social media, or, like, flagging problematic online behavior, or... So like, let's say hypothetically you link student records with social media records somehow, um, and you do that in a way that's legal and ethical, which is questionable. Let's say you figure that out. What are you going to do about it? Like we've cut counselors from schools. My kid is in a K-8. There's one counselor for nine grades. Like, what are you going to do? <laughs> like, let's say you have a kid who does something in social media and they're flagged and you don't have any counselors, like how are you acting on that, right? So like our opinion around data use is like, if you don't have a good plan for using that data in a way that is supportive of the people in the data, so in this case, students, then you probably shouldn't do it because it's it's resources to create these kind of warning systems as Rosh was saying earlier, right? Like the tech is not cheap because um, usually we're procuring that and using consultants and it's private industry and it is it is not cheap, right? So like thinking through all of that, and I I acknowledge that it's super complicated work, 
but it must be just like that discernment process must take place in my opinion, but it rarely is. Similar to that area and also like with just early warning kind of data in general, as Rosh was talking about, like we've created our kind of dashboards, you know, in collaboration with school staff, but especially as I've been reading more about kind of data justice concerns and you can't control what, like we have a collaborative of 30 districts. So if we provide data to those 30 districts and we do it in the same way because the economy of scale is what makes it possible, even if it was designed with, and this isn't like about our districts, any any kind of tool like this anywhere, you can't control, you don't even know how it's being used on the ground. If, if you're like in our position as a data analyst, data provider, or like repackager, let's say um, it's, you know, it's a school district's data, but we're putting it into different forms so that it's more usable. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but, you know, there is, it's just something that I've been kind of been weighing on me since I've been getting more into this topic is, you know, should we be providing that kind of data at all if you can't know how it's being used? Even if you know some people are using it for supportive interventions, you don't know if that's the case across the board. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an opportunity to seek out some funding and do some focus groups. Like, understand it. And also, it's, it's, formative, right? Like you want to improve what you're doing. Like data is really important. I mean, so just like a little connecting the dot story. Like I was a school administrator when I got hired to be the director of the integrated data system in my community, which is Charlotte, North Carolina. And I was hired because I had a reputation as a school leader who used data in really important ways to drive, to drive student achievement and frankly, in staff retention. So like using data is critical in a building. Like that is how, in my opinion, that is like one of the easiest, most cost-effective ways to move kids and, and families and teachers forward, right? For achievement. And <laughs> there are ways we can do it that are really destructive. And we have to acknowledge that tension. Um, but we also have knowledge like data is, is the path. And like I was saying earlier, like the train has left the station. Like we're already through the school official exem exemption under FERPA, already giving mass amounts of data to tech companies and to use these data in ways to, to drive school improvement. So like, again, horizontal barn. So all we can do now is make it better and improve the process. So, I mean, I, I would think there is, certainly a need to put some qual data around that. Like the easiest way to do it is probably some focus groups or at least a survey to then form your focus groups. I think you could get people not only to give you really good feedback on ways you could improve the dashboards themselves, but also give ideas for other schools on how to use the dashboard to drive change, right? So it's not just about data improvement. It's about like 
the so what of the data use, right? So I'm sure there's some schools that are killing it, right? There's some schools that are like using that data, pull it, pulling them into intervention team meetings every week, like really shifting outcomes for kids who need outcomes to shift. And then there are probably some schools that don't even have logins figured out and probably everything in between. So, I mean, pulling on that qual data is like, it benefits everyone, right? Yeah, something that I run into a lot, bringing these types of topics to various entities, there's a lot of, I'm going to call it, there's a lot of inertia behind the ways that a lot of people use data and you bring something like this, which is just, it's new and it's complex, it's nuanced as it should be. These are the kinds of issues that we're facing. And there can be this perception that this is a roadblock. You know, if you're coming in, you're showing up with this, you're, you're saying, no, we cannot move forward with anything. We cannot. And I've been really intentional once that um, kind of became clear <laughs> to try and communicate. Um, no, we, we have, you know, in some ways, to, to borrow language from elsewhere, an ethical imperative to use the data for good if we have them available to us. But you and your work, have you run into that sort of challenge with this? How, how have you navigated that? Um... Oh, yeah. I mean, I believe in putting friction around data use. And that I, you know, people do not like to see me in meetings sometimes, and that is okay. I am totally down with that. If everyone liked me, I would not be walking in this world in an authentic way is the way I view that. So yeah, I I think that there is a lot of data that is used in ways that are questionable legal, in my opinion, not ethical, and certainly not a good idea, right? So yeah, I think a lot of data you should probably stop or at least like pull back. I also think we don't use data effectively. I think that we are using data to make big decisions that are of insufficient quality. That is a huge issue of mine. You know, in fact, in my former role, like I inherited a data system that was amazing. My predecessor like really did an amazing job. But one of the first things I got to do when I was pulled in, like this is well over a decade ago, was delete a bunch of data because there were significant data quality issues that no one felt comfortable plus pressing the delete button. I did feel comfortable and we did press the delete button on that data. So I think there are like real imperatives around data quality measures, making sure we have data collection standards figured out, making sure we're talking to subject matter experts. I mean, I am always astounded by the conversations I have with executive leaders that are like, oh yeah, our data is great. And then you talk Whenever we do a lot of data landscaping where we do, we go into a site and do like 40 to 50 interviews. I always do a range of vertical. So we may talk to the head and then we'll talk to everyone below. And when I talk to the on the ground subject matter expert, like the people he's mucking about in the data all day, they're like, oh no, our data is like a sewer. Like this issue, this issue, this issue. We had the server failure four years ago. It corrupted this, this, and this, like this is in data jail because we procured this out to a data management company and we have to pay $2,000 to get it back. I mean, it's like issue after issue after issue after issue, but that it's not, the issues aren't written down anywhere. Like they're in someone's head or in someone's email. 
they're not communicated clearly in metadata. There's no like data quality standard that's rigorous or shared in any way. I mean, these are just rampant issues. So I'm all for data use, but only if we have these other things in place. And frankly, those things are rarely in place. So yeah, I'm not loved <laughs> in all places is the summary. I relate. <laughs> and I will say you kind of, you kind of got to this point. One of the, one of the ways that I often talk about this sort of thing when I, especially when I'm talking with like IT folks about it, very often ethical data use is also effective data use. It's unethical because it's incorrect, because it's leaving something out. So framing it that way a little bit more, leaning on the language of efficacy a little less on the language, you know, ethics, ethical, uh, has helped. And both very often are accurate. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that can be helpful when I'm, my language shifts a bit when I'm talking to, you know, data custodians, that kind of crowd. But I also believe that ethics has become like a little bit of a dirty word and, and like doing my part to bring it back. Like, because <laughs> ethics is this topic, we don't get training on it. So I'm really excited about a new class I'm teaching at Penn in the fall. It's called Applied Data Ethics Law and the Social Good. And we realized in the creation of this class and like looking at a scope and sequence for other classes that we don't have robust ethics offerings. And then we did a scan and, you know, we found out no one has robust data ethics, like ethics offerings, much less data ethics offerings. It is a very small group of people who are focusing on this and it's not built into, into trainings. Um, in degree programs, as in my opinion, it, it should be. Um, when you track back data, like public data gone wrong, and there are lots of stories in the media about this, they usually fall into two categories. One of just like someone being busy and doing something stupid. That's a lot of the issues that we see that hit the media or that we know about anecdotally. The second category is someone making a decision that didn't consider unintended consequences that are ethical in nature, right? You can generally put them all in those two categories. And then occasionally you have like a malicious intruder, but that's usually like a whole nother bag of worms. So yeah, I agree. It is easier to couch this in the language of like margins of error and, you know, and that kind of stuff. But at the core, like using data, especially with high stakes decision-making with large margins of error is a bad idea. It's also unethical. I think connecting that to what we we were just talking about with like data quality stuff um, that is very along the lines of what we are trying to do using that FI data standard. It's now used throughout our state. Uh, we work with local districts, but our state is using it statewide for state um, reporting. And I really think this has to be an iterative process between the technical, like all of the processes of data loading, data cleaning, data checking. And then when you start using the data, then you see this whole other host of 
data quality issues that you didn't see when you were just spot checking because now you're seeing meaningful data and thinking, oh, that aggregate number cannot be right and dig back in. And then that goes back to the technical folks. But I think the more common approach is that it's just on the technical folks. And we are not often connecting like the iterative cycle. Like one thing that we've learned to say to our districts when we're starting to do data reporting is you're going to see things that aren't right. And you have to tell us what those are because we cannot know. So this is a process where we have to go through this together and, you know, it's going to take a while. But unfortunately, I think a lot of the folks in non-technical positions just wanted to be right. And so like, I'm trying to get better at figuring out how do I get people to buy into that iterative investigation into the myriad of ways that data can be messy and get clean. Yes. Yeah, so another kind of metaphor analogy, whatever literary device I'm using um, that we often say is um, this ideal idea of like kale and like, we all want to have a smoothie that's got like nutrient nutritious things in it and tastes good. So we think of like the smoothie is the outcome, the banana is the analysis, like everyone wants to do that, but it's the kale that makes the smoothie, the smoothie, right? So we focus on the kale. It's like the stuff nobody wants to focus on. So that involves cleaning, that involves metadata, that involves, you know, like identity management, that involves double checking your identity <laughs> management, all these pieces that are not always focused upon and certainly not always taught. I find it that to be like a very interesting shift in some folks I know who were trained under like the computer science model, that's their like they're very good at that piece of it. And then data science training as that has shifted has become more on like the complicated stuff, but like where the quality issues are and where the work that has to be done is just like the old school cleaning, um, the old school like ETL processes. That is, I think, a focus that we've lost. And I think that's that's impacting our, our quality. I also think that work is often hidden because agencies don't want people to know how bad their data is. So it's kind of like the dirty little secret within every agency. Um, oftentimes we notice people will say they refuse to share because of legal reasons. And then, you know, you go through six months of conversations and you realize it's not really legal. It's because they know they have data quality issues that they're working to fix and they don't want to share until they fix them. So it's also related to data flow, especially with cross-sector projects. And one more point, the management part is really hard to get funded. So when you're doing funded work, everyone's to fund like the the analysis like they want the hierarchical linear modeling they want all this like re, they want all this and they want the reporting and they want the power bi or the tableau dashboard but they don't realize that it's going to take like six months of everyday work and like interns going blind on spreadsheets to get there and maybe maybe a realization that 
the organization needs to change its data processes, like data entry at the ground level or or data governance rules, which may or may not be in place at all. That is really hard, like, because it's not just technical, it's a culture shift. Totally. I mean, I... I can't say this enough. Like I myself have been a part of many projects where we have literally been like, we're stopping the project fully in every way, shape or form. We're going to wait. We're going to get, often it's for legal reasons. Like there's no informed consent around something where there has to be legally and no one's thought about that. But it's, it's that. And then the other piece is there is no, like the data collection is not there. Right. So you got to kind of get your house in order and then we can do this project. Um, and I can say there's like been some really great staffing around this. So in my community, Charlotte Mecklenburg, we've done some really great work with data. We have an integrated data system here called the Charlotte Regional Data Trust. It's very well established, trusted, really well run through um, the Urban Institute at, at UNC Charlotte. And one of the things that um, that work led years ago was this county level staffing where they had someone they called data in. And then they had someone called data out. So they literally had county staff for around homeless management work. So this was around community support services. So focused on folks experiencing homelessness, but also related to education, because that includes McKinney-Vento to link it to the education space. So they literally had two staff members. One was called data in. All this person did every day was meet with homeless service providers and help them on their data collection and like data management and data processes. And then they had a, a, a role, I don't remember her title, but we lovingly referred to her as data out. She was in charge of um, like reporting dissemination, but also running all the governance pieces of it. So like, how do you make sure that everyone has reviewed this, this data license request that should before it's approved? Like, I can't say enough about how those two roles shifted the work in our community. And this was at this point, this was like, I don't know, eight, nine years ago. Um, this isn't like new and innovative, but it shifted and it shifted everyone, right? Because once they got their house in order, other people did too. And now the data quality that's coming out of our government services is night and day. But that took funding, right? And that took our county government committing to it, which is hard to do in a lot of places. I think the idea of dirty data, that thing is really complicated. The area that I am working in most often, it's not that we have people who are entering data. We are working with data that is generated when somebody interacts with a system. So a student is in their learning management system. They are clicking through pages. They are clicking on their assignments, et cetera. And those data are captured yada, 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 used to make some kind of decision down the line. And we might have somebody far on the other end, you know, they're, they're looking at a dashboard and they'll say, hey, this isn't right for some reason or another. And there are so many reasons that might be the case. You know, we have students who, um, especially students in vulnerable populations who are using an older device and their page views or what have you don't get captured. You have, you know, whatever table was built to capture their data in the first place has some issues. So something isn't getting categorized correctly. There are interpretation issues all the way down the line, whether it's the person looking at the dashboard or, well, I lost the other one. 
regardless, there are a lot of places that the data can be made dirty and it can feel a little bit like whack-a-mole trying to fix them all. And in my opinion, <laughs> we're never going to be able to whack all of the moles. And that's one of the reasons it's so important to have the qualitative data along the way. It's the other stuff, creating the more holistic picture. I have an IT background and in IT that for a very long time, there's been this idea that data are objective and thus this idea of something that's automatically generated being reported down the line being incorrect can be hard to understand, but that is our reality. I mean, I think a huge part of that is knowing the moles, right? So that's why like any discussion is we got to talk about metadata because someone, someone knows these issues, like these are not a secret. But but you add in staffing turnover, like you add in the great resignation of the past three years. And think of the institutional memory that's been lost on these administrative data sets. And a right? lot of times I think that the people who are most aware of those issues are not in a position of power to be heard. Agreed. Yeah, 100%, which is why governance is important, because if you have bylaws that demands a data stewards group where everyone has a voting right, and that is required for your MOUs and data sharing agreements to be executed, that puts some power around it, right? That becomes power sharing um, and power distribution. So my answer well, to almost I, everything is governance. Well, <laughs> and I, I also think there's, because at least like in Indiana, the average district size is 3,500 students, so very small. And often, there's one person who's working on data and it's only part of their job. They have other things as well. And so if there's an issue with the data and they bring it up, it can be seen as their problem or their fault. So there's also like a risk to bringing up some of these issues to people who don't understand the complexities, which is gonna be almost everyone else in a school district. Totally. No, I mean, I think I think that is such the staffing around this is so tough. Yeah, and actually, this was the staffing and capacity is another issue that I wanted to speak to because, like, a lot of the things that are included in the toolkit as good practices require some dedicated staffing, and you know, thinking about school districts, but I think a lot of social service organizations would fall into this too. It's just no one has enough time to even do the bare minimum. And by bare minimum, I mean what is required by law or agency decision in terms of sending data or reporting data uh, or collecting data. And so it just like, it feels like a luxury to be talking about these things, which should not be like they should be baseline required but i know very few districts who would have that extra capacity or not extra but just capacity i'll go bigger picture here that's because there's been like a pretty steady war on public education nationally but especially in some states so yes 
there's not capacity here, but there's capacity for very little, right? Like we know a lot that we're not doing best practice in every place, right? We have a lot of information about class size. We have a lot of information about the role of student support services. Like there are many, many spaces in public education where we are not adhering to best practice. And this is just another one, right? But I think we do have to say we can do small shifts. I don't think we can just throw up our hands and be like, this is too big. We can't do it. Right. And so we have to say like, what is one small shift we can do? And that's really the role of the toolkit. We hope that anyone who interacts with the toolkit can read through the positive and problematic practices page and be like, oh, you're right. I can do that one tiny thing differently. Or, oh, I could, you're right. I could like pull this person into this meeting that we have monthly. And that would give us a vantage point to think about unintended consequences in a different way. Like there is something for every single person to do that is small, usually, to think about shifting practice. So I think there are places we can shift in ways that we have resources for. And then sometimes you just have to call it and say, we shouldn't do it. Like if we can't do good engagement or some kind of analysis of unintended consequences around the state of use, then we shouldn't do it. In my opinion, there needs to be a lot more just stopping of ideas. Just because we can do it technically doesn't mean we should do it. And that's what I hope this work drives. I hope it involves a lot of cognitive dissonance into like the way in which we're using data for more people to raise their hand and be like, yeah, I'm not comfortable with this. Or like, I'm realizing that this entire project is around like this population and we don't have anyone in this room who has ever been a part of that population, who has a family member in that population or has provided direct services to that population. And that's a problem. Like, I hope that's what people will get out of toolkit and out of our work in general. I'm really glad that you said, you know, the focus on the small shifts, because, you know, when I first read through the toolkit, I was like, oh my God, I'm, you know, a lot of these things are either out of my control or like really big. And I remember pulling out, you know, maybe eight or nine things that I thought these are things I can do. But I still felt overwhelmed and kind of like very negative about (laughs) the possibilities. So I think that, you know, especially if other like listeners are kind of thinking in the same way, focusing on that sort of harm reduction approach of doing a little bit to improve is better than doing nothing at all. And hopefully as we do a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit more, there starts to be more critical mass of movement and conversation and like kind of a cultural shift in how we do these things and how we talk about those things. So thank you for reminding me of that (laughs) experience I had the first time I read it and I was like, oh no. (laughs) Yeah. So along those lines of sort of the, the small shifts early in the toolkit, folks are asked to consider how data use can help communities interrogate systems instead of just informing how to treat communities with additional services and programs. And I think that's a really interesting point. And 
just a little bit of a, a like place where we can pause and think about what we're doing and maybe make a little bit of a change. But it's also something like I, I don't think that mindset is super familiar to a lot of people. So I'm curious, do you have any examples of like times when you've seen that shift happen or, you know, just examples in either direction of those types of questions? Yeah, I mean, I think the easiest way to think about this concept is like, okay, there's a problem and we're trying to use data to solve the problem. Is this problem an individual problem or is this a larger problem, right? So one common like visual that I give when I'm talking about this, I do a, my, a lot of my own research is around educational equity. And um, if you geocode data in our community, you can geocode a range of indicators from, you know, housing to crime to potholes to water consumption to you know all these all these things, right? We have this great long-term project in Charlotte-Mecklenburg called the Quality of Life Study. It's been around since the '90s. It started in like paper copies. It's now all digital, and it's amazing. If anyone wants to Google it, but you can take any of those maps. They're all the same map. And then you overlay student achievement, it's all the same map, right? So you have to ask your question, like the question, why are we focused on individual kids when it ain't the kids, right? It ain't the fish, it's the water. And so whenever possible, we have to ask that question. Is this about individuals or is this about larger systems? Um, and so just as much as possible coming back to that, right? Kids may not need another program in a school. They may need a housing voucher. And this is why like my own work shifted from focusing on individual outcomes with kids to large system, which is why for the past 10 plus years, all I've done is cross-sector data integration work. Because that to me is how we're going to shift, right? We need to get the kids the services. We need to get families supported fully if we're really going to shift outcomes. And we need to drive advocacy for good social policy. So to answer your question, like clearly, like as much as possible, focus on the water rather than the fish. We often don't need a new program, but that's our default setting. Unfortunately, I think we're about out of time. This has been a really great conversation. I feel like we could probably ask 10 or 20 more questions here. So I just want to say thank you so much. Amy, if you have any last takeaways or things that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you really want to mention or reiterate something that we already talked about, I want to give you a, a chance to do so. Yeah, no, I just, I really appreciate the conversation. I really appreciate like the, the singular, like concentrate focus on education here, because I do think it's so relevant to this work and just grateful for the, the space and bandwidth to talk about it. And if anyone's interested in like governance, legal issues, all these things, we try to capture our learnings down. And so check out our website, aisp.upenn.edu, because we're always, in fact, we just um, are, we're publishing a consent, a brief on consent this week. My colleague, Deja Kent, um, is the lead author for that. It is really a strong contribution to this work. Um, we do a lot of kind of disentangling these challenges specifically to FERPA and HIPAA. And I could see that being of interest to some folks on this in this audience as well. So 
Yeah, we'll put links to that in the show notes. And Rosh, Emily, any final thoughts or, or questions? One of the things that we have an opportunity here is in about a year, once ESSER dollars start to expire, people are going to be left with investments in data systems. And a lot of what you brought up in terms of persistence with wraparound practice and having bylaws or governance documents or whatever it is are going to become crucial. Otherwise, these monolithic data systems that are being implemented with tons of ESSER dollars are just going to exist and people are just going to either ignore them or use them maybe to persist outcomes that we don't want persisted. And so this is an ideal time to start to socialize this amongst the groups that we all work with because there's tons of money out there and tons of stuff is going to be rolled out. Uh, and I fear for that stuff just perpetuating our current norms. That That's kind of a downer ending. So maybe somebody can do a more positive ending. <laughs> I mean, like this is not, you know, sunshine and rainbows work. Like if, if that's if that's what you need to get through the work day, then like you pick the wrong topic. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I will say that like we are seeing shifts here. I mean, we just we just rolled out our second cohort for our equity practice learning community. The focus of that is educational equity, and we had tremendous applications. We had 13 sites apply. We would have liked to accept all 13. That has was not the case three years ago. I mean, there is shift happening here and the field is growing and like really moving in a meaningful direction. So that can be our positive part. Like we are seeing the field move in rich ways. Um, and so thank you for all the people in the audience here that are listening that are a part of those shifts because it, it's it's the it's the individual actions of people in these systems that are making this work move. Way more uplifting. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I'll echo. There are a lot of positive shifts going on. We're, we're in a really interesting time, right? Like the pandemic hit and data collection and use just absolutely went wild in ways that it, it didn't before. We are now dealing with generative AI on top of all of that. There were a lot of things happening and there are a lot of people looking for ways to engage with the data, engage with these tools without causing harm. I think the conversation has really been elevated. I think there is definitely more of an awareness that all of these technologies can be used for great good and great, you know, ill <laughs> is how I'll put it. Having these kinds of resources like um, Amy, what, what you and, and the group have put together available, they really hit at exactly the right time. So thank you for your work. Thank you for putting this out here for us. It's a really big deal. And I think it's going to be really beneficial for this work going forward. Um, and also, thank you, Molly and Rosh, for letting me crash this party. This has been a great conversation. All right. Thank you, everyone, so much, especially Amy, for joining us and, and talking about these things and helping us further our understanding and giving us some ideas on ways that we can improve ourselves and hopefully our audience found found those as well so thank you again this is great yeah. thanks y'all